What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the force. I felt it. <laughs> we have a new enemy. The Squarmates podcast. Who's just a podcast? They could destroy us. Only internet could no longer save him. Them. <laughs> The internet is strong with them. <laughs> the son of the, I don't know, the Squamates podcasters must not become uh, internet savvy herpetologists. <laughs> if they could be they would become a powerful ally. Yes. Yes. They would be a great asset. Can it be done? They will join us or die. Episode 68 of the world-famous Pat's Todd's Oozettes. And um, uh, a little show in which we like to talk. Uh, tetrapods, allegedly. Uh, I'm Todd Standing, and I podcast together with... Darth Vader. <clears throat> right, uh, so, straight in. With a slick, honed professional. Have we hit that 10 million listener mark we're just short of the 10 million listener mark just short I think we're, really close i think we're joking <laughs> numbers they're not 10 million the 10 million listener mark as we call it so hello new listeners and um commiserations commiserations <laughs> at this at this point of the podcast the life of the podcast i don't know if it's gotten better or it's gone worse or whatever but uh, okay so um Oh, I didn't write down FU. Okay, I have some FU. Okay. For new listeners, FU stands for... FU, Darren. <laughs> well, we hit a... Um, we we reached a goal on a Patreon um, thing set up to support us. And um, that means that... Insert sound effect here. Yep. And another one for good measure. Yep. <laughs> Yay, welcome to Dingo and the Baby, finally! Yeah. John has this obsession with strange noises. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, like, if I swear, you can bleep it out with style instead of, like, you know... Yeah, farty noises, so, just like so, the one. So F-U doesn't stand for you <laughs> it stands for follow-up. <laughs> so it's not you it's follow up yeah now you're just being naughty darren <laughs> so uh f you from last time so in the discussion about electro rana the little frog in uh, amber um like an idiot when i was talking about quick run through of the frog or a neuron family tree and uh, i referred to the two uh, major sister lineages within neobatrachia as bufonoids and rhinoids one idiot God, it's not bufonoids hyloids okay so true toads bufonids are part of the same clade as tree frogs and poison dart frogs and such and uh, those animals are called hyloids not bufonoids one idiot <clears throat> more 
Any FU from you? Uh, no. no, no. News from uh, Darren and John. So this is the part of the show where we talk about new artwork because, <laughs> all right, we, last episode we spoke about John's new, uh, definitely impressionistic style uh, Duckwood <laughs> dinosaurs. That'll make sense <laughs> if you listen to the last one. But this time, John, inspired by the movie Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, has produced a black dinosaur that's clearly based on the Indo... What's it called? Indo... Indoraptor? Indoraptor. Yep. So this entire segment is you... Go, you're just sort of basically teasing me about... Well, no. No, I never do that. <laughs> <clears throat> Why would I do that? <laughs> so, so you've come up with this segment to say that my dinosaur, which is... Are you talking about the Edmontosaurus? Yeah. Well, I like it. It's good. Yeah. Is the Indoraptor. It doesn't look a lot like the Indoraptor. Although the Indoraptor did seem... Had also the confusion between whether it was quadrupedal or not. Uh-huh. And it was dark coloured, so I guess there's that. Yep. I rest my cases. I should have made it roaring, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> With a banner falling down in front of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, <laughs> was that the news? Oh, for God's sake, selfieing again. Constant selfieing. selfie. <laughs> right. Um, for the fans. <laughs> is that a new segment? Yeah. Yeah, Darren does selfie. No, no. Do, do you want to say... I'm not taking the piss. Do you want to say anything serious about the about the, the artwork? Um, you also did that camp. <clears throat> um, no, not really. Uh, it's just a hadrosaur. It's nothing particularly interesting <laughs> about that. <laughs> oh, I really... I sell my yeah, artwork so well, don't I? Yeah. So if you're interested in John's art, Stop. <laughs> yeah. Just don't be. Yeah, don't be. Okay, so what were we? Uh, artwork, that's boring. Don't have anything to say about it. BTCon. BTCon BioTweeps conference. So these days in the age of the internet, you can have um, online Twitter conferences where people give presentations using, you know, uh, like slides and various other you know, images and whatnot and little bits of text. But instead of standing in front of an audience mm-hmm. of 100 people or less, you broadcast to an audience of, like, seriously, over a million using, you know, um, tweets. And not just, like, random, I've just bashed it out on a keyboard right now, but, you know, things you, you've put at least a little bit of effort into, you know, preparing and whatnot. And uh, there's an annual thing called uh, the BioTweeps um, Twitter conference. Hashtag BTCon18 was obviously this year's one. Uh, BioTweeps is a science communication project which features a different boldest every week. The first BioTweeps Twitter conference, which was last year, brought together 60 presenters from 12 countries from across the biological sciences. The conference was extremely successful, engaging 1,200 people and with an estimated global audience of 22 million and they didn't just make that up. <laughs> See our Nature Communications article, which they've linked to. And um, the second of these conferences was uh, split over 21st, 22nd of June. Uh, invited, it, it featured invited presenters as well as uh, plenty of presentations selected from submitted abstracts. So this is this is like you know 
done properly. It's not just like just have a random bunch of people tweeting. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm talking about it because I was invited and um, gave the plenary opening um, uh uh, presentation for the paleontology session on the second day and thank you to Daniela Rabiotti and everyone else involved uh, Danny was was responsible for in, inviting me and um, yeah, I, I, I was like I'm concerned about putting time into this uh, I, I struggle struggle to make time for so many things i should i've got a policy of saying no to things this year and it hasn't hasn't gone well but anyway i'm really <laughs> glad i that uh, I, I did it and um as the uh, person with the opening session my presentation was on eo tyrannus and the history of uh tyrannosauroid dinosaurs mm-hmm. um and i had an unlimited number of tweets as a as a invited presenter and um yeah I, I tweeted a ton i had a half an hour i spent basically a whole day preparing for this and um didn't get through all my tweets because i'd because half an hour of tweeting is twitter's annoyingly slow when you're when you're threading messages adding one after another because you have to keep waiting for it to upload and then you have to keep going to the bottom of the thread which takes like seconds it's not instant and um uh, yeah, I didn't get through all my material, but whatever it worked well. It had an enormous, um, you know, reach. It was th- these tweets were seen by, well, millions. So that was good, and it's timely, of course, because um, for those of you who don't know, the Ea Tyrannus monograph. So loads of people have heard this from me before. Forgive me. Ea Tyrannus is a tyrannosauroid theropod dinosaur from the Lower Cretaceous rocks of the Isle of Wight. Myself and a team of colleagues published it in 2001 steve hart was first author and that it was always clear that our first rushed preliminary paper which is not a particularly strong paper um was um preliminary and that i would produce the full description for my uh, phd thesis which i finished in early 2007 and then the plan was well now that's done now let's publish it well again <laughs> apologies to people i've said this to before i say this i say this a lot i've said this at several conference conferences and stuff you try finding the time to to just let's just publish a monograph it's really hard it's really hard if you're an, a salaried academic and you're paid to do research i do know of cases where working scientists have had to like basically take six months out of their normal research to finish and publish a monograph now try doing it if you're not a salaried scientist now try doing it if, you know i'm like a freelance scientist author researcher consultant i any any paper writing i do is done in air quotes spare time well try doing a monograph it's it's taken years every single step of the process has taken years getting it done getting the figures done getting it submitted getting it back from review dealing with reviewer changes take getting it back to the journal and it hasn't been an efficient uh, streamlined process and my own you know um personal circumstances have slowed it down by years and there's nothing i can do about it but despite me saying all that <clears throat> excuse me just about there and i'm the uh, uh a version of the manuscript accepted and through review at peer j the open access journal cool myself and andrea cow are currently making the final tweaks to that it's going to take me ages though i'm, I'm really worried it's going to take weeks to just to make changes because <clears throat> well like when am i supposed to do this in my life so but i'm nearly there nearly there yeah um and because i want to publish it in an open access journal and peer j is the journal we're going for 
I did initially submit it to a um, like a technical uh, sort of collected series of papers, and it went through review there. And then, oh dear, I feel really bad about this, but I then thought this is actually a really bad idea. I don't want it to go into a series of papers because it won't be accessible. Yeah, and um, I feel very guilty at what what I what I did to the editors, but I ended up pulling out of that, even though they'd put it through review. And I basically killed the volume. Some of you will know the story I'm talking about. But um, <clears throat> anyway, to publish it in PeerJ as a monograph of like 100 pages with like hundreds of illustrations, hundreds of figures and photos, um, you have to pay charges. And the charges are not it's crazy, but they're hundreds of pounds or hundreds of dollars, around about $600. So um, I can pay for that myself, but I'm kind of like, I really kind of shouldn't. <laughs> it's not the wisest move. Yeah. And um, so I opened a um, GoFundMe thing, which I did like uh, about three days ago. So I said I need to raise six hundred dollars. That's about five hundred pounds. And guess what? Do you know what happened? Well, when I looked at it, you were halfway through. Yeah. So I hit the target yeah. within like five hours. There you go. And when, in fact, went not substantially, but went somewhat over the target, quite a bit, which is enough for me to have a little bit of money, as in we're talking about a couple of hundred dollars or pounds. The pound and the US dollar are becoming dangerously close. In <laughs> <laughs> it used to be it used to be two dollars to the pound. Now it's about yeah. I don't know one point eight or something. But um, uh, that's good for us. Yes, allegedly, yeah, yeah, makes the maths a bit hard. <laughs> but, um, well, well, make sure. I just think they're equivalent now, which is wrong. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so now you've made all a, that money. What are you doing? Yeah, I've got a little bit of nice glasses. I've got a little bit over to go to other things. Is basically what I'm saying. So it's mm-hmm. like, wow, I've, I, I have like had grant money before for other things, but um, this is actual money that can be used for other scientific projects. And it means that the the the, um, the open access Eotyrannus monograph, fully funded and air quotes, all I have to do is finish it, which is yep. taking me... Damn it, Darren, now you have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always wanted to. I always did have to do it. It's just... Yeah. Okay, so that is that. So Eotyrannus coming soon to an open access internet place near you. And, oh boy, have we got some exciting results. <laughs> Okay, I'm not joking. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Should we talk about Tetsucon? Uh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Tetsucon. Go on then. All right. Uh, Tetsucon is happening on October the 6th. Um, it's a two-day event this year. So it's on Sixth a... 6th and... 6th and 7th. That's right. Um, this year we're expanding to have a drinks reception and a dinner... And we're separating out the paleo work sh- paleo art workshop, which will be a separate stream, which will be bigger and better. We're going to have some talks and more time to actually do some do the actual workshop bit because that's often been a little bit rushed. Uh, we've got lots of great speakers lined up this year. Uh, I don't know whether you want to announce some of them, Darren. What yeah, do yeah, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, John and myself are sort of co-presenting. We've got we've got a couple of people that are acting as chairs for some of the sessions. We've got a session dedicated to bird evolution. We've got a panel session uh, on uh, birds. Well, and, and no particular reason, just, just because that's just how things fell together. So Stephen Zhang is talking about uh, 
extinct elephants, Jennifer Jackson, Baleen whale uh, origins and uh, recovery levels and all kinds of stuff and Southern Hemisphere story. Uh, Steve Alain is to talk about snake fungal disease. Lucy Cook, well-known author and TV presenter, is talking about The Truth About Animals, which is a tie-in with her book, which she will be selling, the book of the same name, The Truth About Animals, which is fun read. It's got loads of stories about masturbation in chimpanzees and Christ, tons of stuff. Katrina Van Grau will be talking about her brand new book, Unnatural Selection, Evolution at the Hand of Man, and will also be signing the book, which will be available there. Katrina's mm-hmm. currently doing like a, a tour in North America uh, promoting the book, and so this will be one of her first talks in the UK. A um, couple of people who aren't confirmed, so I'm not going to mention their names. So John has already mentioned the Paleo Art event. Arn Ra, if you have ever looked at anything online to do with creationism, skepticism, critical thinking, uh, anything to do with the promotion of science and the um, contesting of pseudoscience or anti-science, you will have seen articles or videos by Arn Ra. Uh, he's a, got a massive uh, following in the pro-science community and the skeptical community mm-hmm. um and uh, he also does a lot about you know even uh, phylogeny and the history of life and he's got this new project called the phylogeny explorer project and he, he wants to talk about that at TetsuCon. then we've got a whole bunch of people talking about birds including robin robin womack uh, albert chen caitlin kite hanukkah meyer glenn young fiona taylor will be talking about music for wildlife documentaries which is something really exciting and innovative looking forward to that and hopefully getting marco shea the world famous uh herpetologist and snake expert does loads of field work in like new guinea and uh, polynesia micronesia etc although i'm talking about that with him tomorrow um we are having uh, of course our famous quiz and um tons of stalls we've currently got two four six we've got about 10 stalls people selling merchandise and toys and products and books and things yeah awesome i mean listening to you list it all out man it's so much bigger than last year or uh, any of the previous years the number of speakers we can have well it's double isn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what i was thinking the number of speakers because like, last year it was like, know, it was like five or six yeah. oh my god it's like 12 <laughs> this is crazy but yeah, yeah. that's because it's like two days, two days so. yeah bigger yeah. and better than ever and so. with and with one parallel session at least one parallel session oh and they're also going to have like a debate as well but that's not yet sorted so mm-hmm. yeah i mean we've still got some details to sort out so there'll probably still be things we announce later on but so um yeah you can book your tickets at tetzu.com slash convention there's a link if you just go to tetzu.com it's up at the top it says tetzucon click on that that's where you can buy tickets um Every Tetsu, recent TetsuCon has been a sellout, hasn't it? Uh, last two yes. years have been sellouts. So, uh, yeah, don't assume that you can buy your ticket at the last minute because you might not be able to. Especially for the conference dinner, um, that is quite space constrained and will fill up. Okay. It be well, it being such a bigger event. It is, of course, more expensive than the previous ones. Well, it's the same price but per day. The same price per day. So, yeah, people just have to. I, I, I don't. I, I don't know even why you. I don't know why I know. you apologise for it. It's as because, cheap as it can be, and it's. Um... Well, that's the point I was going to make. Just because I'm acutely aware, because because having gone for most of my life without having any money, I know that a hundred pounds is a lot to a lot of people. But it's like, yeah. Yep. It can't be any it flipping can't be any cheaper. Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> Still not making any money out of this. Anyway, oh, oh, and, on, and on other good notes. Um, okay, so here you insert a jingle you've made for this bit. Uh-huh. Oh, hold on, news from the world of news. You have, there's a yeah. news from the world of news jingle. So, what, like, okay. Yeah. Loch Ness eDNA. Oh, I haven't heard about this. You have or haven't? No, I haven't. Tell me more, Darren. Well, you know what eDNA is? Yeah, environmental DNA. Environmental DNA. Okay, so for, I, I don't know if we've covered it on the um, uh, podcast before. We have talked about but, it before. Okay, so a quick recap. Basically, uh, living things leave genetic traces of themselves in the environment, either in sediment, like in soil or in water, because of their urine and feces and because of skin cells that slough off their bodies, all that kind of stuff. And as genetic sequencing has become easier and cheaper and more refined, people have been able to actually detect the DNA of living things in the environment, even without finding the organisms themselves. So, for example, you can collect pond water and even even ocean water and recover the DNA of the animals that have left their, you know, Mm-hmm. gut cells or skin cells or whatever in the environment uh, and this has become a this has become a big thing it's a really exciting story and i was going to dig out the magazine article i published which was a few years back probably like around 2014 where in an article in i think it's um oh it's just out of reach it's just over there should i go and get it no, no. i can't be asked I'm going to see if I can find the bit of text on my phone there because I photographed it um i published an article where i said that it's about cryptozoology and I said that the time will come when people will be able to verify or refute the alleged presence of mystery animals in a given area through the study of environmental DNA. So mm-hmm. I can remember, I can remember back in, I'm going to say early 90s, I remember being at university at the time, I remember there were studies done on environmental DNA retrieved from soil samples in New Zealand and they were just basically seeing what what they could what they could find and I thought that's that's crazy if you can like and basically it was sheep all the way down <laughs> <laughs> like decades decades of sheep urine with not a trace of mower DNA um Okay, so this this article, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Okay, this is the this is the this is the conclusion in an article I wrote about 2014. The future is likely to hold more insights into mythical creatures. Okay, I did not choose all the words in this article. Cryptids was changed to mythical creatures. Techniques for extracting and identifying DNA have now been honed to such a degree that scientists can determine whether an animal was present simply from the traces it leaves in its environment. A few droppings, even saliva and skin cells, are sufficient. In this quote sight unseen unquote detection method a small quantity change page of soil or water is collected from the habitat suspected to be occupied by a target animal it's then analyzed in labs looking for traces of environmental dna or e-dna little e big dna which is annoying just because edna e-dna is really hard to, to google hasn't yet sorted this one out <laughs> in 2012 
analysis of eDNA and half a litre of seawater collected off the coast of Denmark revealed the presence of 15 fish species, including a few rare vagrants. The DNA traces most likely came from skin, scales, mucus and gut cells and faeces. In the same year, analysis of another sample of seawater collected from the Baltic Sea found eDNA from long-finned pilot whales, a species reported occasionally in the region but generally thought to be an extremely rare visitor. The very idea that people might search for these tiny traces of environmental DNA is brand new and its potential for cryptozoology can't be underestimated. It might show us that a species once considered extinct is actually alive and well or provide evidence that previously unknown species exist the previously unknown species exists or provide evidence that previously unknown species exists doesn't sound right to me anyway either no. way the 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 next few years will be an interesting time to watch this space now what of course i didn't say in the article is that it might also you know negative results are important as well negative results are positive results in science get your head around that one and um that you know if you if you sample at like a fat let's say hypothetically you sample at a thousand localities across the pacific northwest and you don't find any primate dna other than homo sapiens have you disproven the existence of bigfoot well that's a interesting discussion yeah and complicated by the fact that people so many people do now think that bigfoot is actually part of homo sapiens let's not go there for now but um uh, the, the, you can, there's, there is a potential for that kind of thing. You know, negative results are positive results in this area. So I also included this in my book, Hunting Monsters, published in hardback in 2017. And in there, I've got this, I said, said the same thing about eDNA. And I've also said it on a few like documentaries about Loch Ness. Well, um, my friend, Professor Neil Gemmel, based uh, at the University of Otago, New Zealand. How do you say Otago? Like sounds, that. Sounds right to me. Yeah. I've always wanted to say it. A, no, that'll do. Stop Otago. 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 So I'm going to quote my friend Jess here. Hi, Jess. Um, it is true. I do put the wrong emphasis on my pronunciation. <laughs> Pronunciations. <laughs> no, I forgot how she says it. Putting the emphasis on the wrong syllables. Syllables. Maybe that's it. Is that from a film? Anyway, I don't know. Um, yeah, Neil Gemmel was inspired by this and cleverly used eDNA research. At, well, no, 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 let, me, let me let me let me let me restructure how I'm saying this. He thought let's do a really awesome big scale eDNA study across freshwater bodies in the northern United Kingdom. <laughs> and um, we can get, we've got a hook here, which will basically mean that it's guaranteed universal coverage in the global media. Yep. We can say, because we're going to you know, sample from Loch Ness, we can say that we're searching for Nessie, which of course they're not. They don't think Nessie's real. Yeah. They don't think they're going to find anything relevant to Nessie. But you can say, well, this is a technique for t testing for the presence of Nessie. So... I think it's been suggested informally a few times. Okay, I think I'm the first person to get it in print. Not that I'm trying to get credit for it, anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, thank you to Neil for, for, for crediting me quite rightly uh, whenever he talks about this. So, so they've been, Neil and his colleagues, they have gotten, oh, my God, they've just got an insane amount of media coverage, like, you know, 50 different interviews every day. And have basically used it as a uh, as quite a clever piece of science outreach because journalists come to you and say, "Do you, you know? Are you searching for the Loch Ness monster?" 
Well, you don't just say yes or no. You have to um, contextualize that by saying that by saying what you're doing, by saying something yeah. about the fact that we're, stu- we're studying, you know, we're searching for eDNA. What's eDNA? Well, it's this. You know, it's a way of talking about the actual part of the scientific process and and all manner of things like where the funding comes from the actual physical logistics you know how you use laboratories how you get the samples analyzed where you do this what can we learn from it and in every single interview i've seen they've managed to get in some actual science about like why why this is important why we need to study edna uh, and of course they are not saying that they are not searching for the longest monster be funny if they find some results of that. <laughs> yeah oh my- <laughs> that'd be cool but um yeah so there you go so i i feel connected to that project that's a good so let's say that lock the loch ness monster is real and it's a plesiosaur yeah what would this show up as so it well, would be unidentified yeah. reptile he uh, has specifically been asked that and has and has yeah. answered it in detail and he said and we would say this same thing. You don't have plesiosaur DNA, but we've, we're pretty confident that plesiosaurs are diapsid reptiles. Mm-hmm. Those of you who know anything about the history of reptiles will know there's been all kinds of you know confusion and discussion about whether sauropter- plesiosaurs are part of sauropterygia, whether sauropterygia is within diapsid. Current thinking is they are. They're very modified diapsids. Um, so you would have DNA from a diapsid, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there are excluding birds and you could tell if it's a bird straight away so excluding birds you've got, got like lizards and snakes that live in the region you've got the viviparous lizard and the adder and you might have grass snakes as well i suppose but straight away you can say it's not those then you can test whether it's a turtle and you can say well it's not a turtle because we've got their dna as well um so you'd have like an unidentified diapsid if it was a plesiosaur and then and then you'd have to you know you'd have to test this many times and get additional samples and all kinds of stuff I guess I was wondering whether they do sort of higher level taxonomy matching or whether they just match to specific markers in known taxa, in which case it might not tell you something as broad as diapsid. It might tell you, well, it's not, it's not, you know, this turtle or that adder. I think you'd you'd see parts of the sequence that allow you to work out what ballpark, you know, what part Mm -hmm. of the phylogenetic tree you're in. And then it's a process of elimination. If that were to if that were to happen, but um, right. I wonder. That's if pretty cool, claim, huh? That's pretty cool. Hope yeah, they find pretty, it. Yeah. Hope they find it, Darren. I, well, I have to say that for the Loch Ness monster, Loch Ness monster is not one of those things where I'm constantly thinking. Uh, is is the stuff because I've I've said for a long time that I don't think there is a Loch Ness monster, no. at least not in the sense of there being an undiscovered giant animal. No. Uh, I don't, and I don't think I'm wrong on that. Whereas there are mystery creatures where I do live in perpetual fear of like, could I be wrong? No, fear is the wrong word. It's like, I wonder if I'm wrong. I do. I wonder if I'm wrong. Yeah, but let's not go there today. Yeah, it's the Loch Ness monster is one of the less plausible ones. It's just, yeah. Well, Uh, especially the traditional sort of view of it is a large, very large, um, long-necked, probably reptilian. Thing yeah, yeah. living in yeah. Loch Ness, yeah, just no. 
Well, Loch Ness is one of those cases where if you go, I, I believe in these cases. I don't believe in knee-jerk skepticism. I don't believe in the explanation, oh, it's impossible for this reason. I think you have to go back to the original, um, the eyewitness accounts concerned and evaluate them. And for Loch Ness, it's like, they're all a pile of crap. They're like described. There are there are thousands of, of Loch Ness things and uh, Loch Ness um, descriptions of encounters, eyewitness encou- accounts, and they describe all manner of things. And if you look at them, it's like that one is indeterminate. That one sounds like it's a wave. That one sounds like it's a swimming bird. That one sounds like it's a swimming deer. That one was a seal. That one was a deer seen at the lock side. That one was a ball on the water. That was indeterminate. That one's indeterminate. That one's a swimming bird. You, you can do there isn't anything that's like wow that's clearly unexplained and is definitely a monster or the few that are are, are so you know they're from people who've got a history of reporting all manner of stuff and are, they are highly suspect whereas for some other mystery animals that isn't definitely the case you can't go back to every single one and say that was a bear that was a deer that was yeah. a seal that was a bear that was a person um so yeah my take on it <clears throat> yeah all right um, what's next? Foro. Foro. Foro panarium is uh, a paleogene North American bird from the uh, early Eocene of the famous uh, Green River Formation of Wyoming. And it was named by well-known uh, paleoornithologist Dawes Olsen in 1992 and it's known from a really nice mostly articulated skeleton preserved on a slab um, it's kind of like sort of vaguely Huatzin like uh, Huatzin kind of like a sort of long-legged land bird of some sort and kind of the size of like a smallish crow and Olsen suggested in 1992 he gave a fairly good um anatomical description he said that it's uh it could be like an early relative of what scenes or it could be related to cuckoos or turacos and uh there's a really nice reconstruction of it done by jp o'neill which is in that fiducia's uh, fiducia's book oh i'm fiducia jesus <laughs> um <laughs> oh right so there's this guy called Steve Brissati who's got this new book out. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs or The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaur. I don't know. I can't remember. And there's some really negative reviews of it online. Mm. And two of them in particular, actually, no, one of them in particular, I could tell who wrote it. And I could tell who wrote it by the specific words and the specific way they arranged sentences. And it was Alan Fiducia himself. Alan Fiducia has published anonymous Amazon reviews of books by people like Steve Prasati. So that's a bit underhanded and also strange. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I, I know Steve Prasati very well. Many of you will know that. Anyway, so that was, that was an aside tangent. Um, yeah, uh, let's just keep this short and brief. Right. So there's a new paper out by Daniel Field and Alison Siang. Apologies for butchering the pronunciation of her surname. It's, it's in uh, BMC Evolutionary Biology, which is a well-known open access uh, journal. Uh, a North American stem turaco and the complex biogeographic history of modern birds. And they basically show via, uh, you know, finding characters and chucking this animal into a phylogenetic database compiled by Gaud Meyer and colleagues. 
um, they find Foro to be a Turaco. So Turacos today are exclusive to sub-Saharan Africa. There are fossil Turacos from uh, Europe, however, and Paleogene ones, Eocene and Legacy ones, and Foro is a North American stem Turaco. So this seems to resolve the enigma of its uh, identity. And interesting that it's like long-legged and rather... But By the way, when I say long-legged, I don't mean it's like a stork or heron. I mean it's got like slightly longer legs than modern Turacos. It wouldn't look mm-hmm. like a ridiculously long-legged bird. But it's uh, this suggests that it's like less arboreal, less of a you know, less of a tree-dwelling bird, more of a thing that can forage and run around on the ground and stuff. So, um... Uh, yeah, quite an interesting an interesting paper if you're interested in um, the uh, paleogene evolution of uh, birds. Um, yep, yeah, I could say a lot more about it, but I think we should stop there. All right. Uh, uh, Foropinarium resolved, and Foropinarium. For those of you who don't know, its a, its name is a is a famous pun based on the name of Pierce Broadcorp, one of the world's most famous paleoornithologists. I've written down Summerside Human Gate Study. Yep. Have I done that? Let's find out. <laughs> Why have you done that? Well, that's odd because then you say the main event is going to follow on from that. So oh. it's way weird that you forgot what that is. Right. So Eric Summerside, Roger Cram, Ala Ahmed, yep. in Journal of the Royal Society Interface. <laughs> okay. The title, apparently, the name of the journal, apparently. Um, Cut a long story short. Now, this is not the. (laughs) This is this paper is not the first one to make this point or to cover this area. This is actually quite a large area of investigation, not just for humans but for other tetrapods as well. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that humans are really variable in gaits. We have all kinds of different things we can walk in speeds and how where and how we bend our legs and how much you know how long your stride is how you move your feet there's all, all kinds of variation there mm-hmm. and this study um analyzed uh, a lot of the various you know, variation within gait and basically showed that people um let's say let's use a dirty word and say subconsciously but people dirty word subconsciously select their gait based on energetic efficiency. What's dirty word about subconsciously? Because it makes it sound like it's... um, It makes it sound like it's still under some form of... Oh... It makes it sound like you're still kind of thinking about the process, and you're not. I don't think that's the definition of subconscious. I think subconscious is the definition is you're not conscious of it. It's oh, you could not, say it's unconsciously. Not, it's not the right term to use. It's like it's like a ah. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, Darren. I think it's fine. I think I think I think I should use a different term. This isn't a term they use in the paper. I'm just it's like an it's like an automatic decision yeah. that we make without thinking about it because even saying it's a decision is but we can we can intervene and change our gait. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the fact that it's done automatically normally 
but we can intervene with our conscious mind seems yeah. this is the very purpose of the word subconscious well, fine. Then in, in that case in that case i was right thanks <laughs> and okay so yeah basically uh, people they choose a specific gate depending on um the metabolic cost involved in whatever gate they're choosing it's not the only factor but it's uh it's one of the it's it's a uh, yeah yeah it's one of them it's a big one and like I say, they're not the first people to say this. And I know this has been demonstrated for other animals. It's been demonstrated for uh, big birds and horses and dogs and other animals that they they seem to choose a gait depending on what is, yeah, sort of energetically efficient. Which is which I know it's one of those things where it's like, well, duh, <laughs> isn't that really obvious? Yeah. But it's like there's loads there's loads of things that might be obvious, but you still have, you still require some study to demonstrate it. Otherwise, it's just a you know, well, that's. But so they're choosing a gate based on how fast they want to go. Well, based That's on all most... kinds of things, based on how much how much weight they're, they're carrying, or based yeah. on what you know how they're leaning, or what the substrate's like, or how bumpy the ground is, or mm-hmm. what the weather's like, or whether they're holding hands with someone. You know, all those things they all make a difference yeah. in what gate you choose. And um, this is this is this is not the answer. This is not the magic answer to this. Like, why is there this gate variation in people? But it's like. Think about it. I am I'm, I'm perpetually uh, amazed is too strong a word. I'm perpetually surprised at how lazy I find myself. Like, for example, if I am standing up next to a bookcase and I want to reach a book down at the bottom of the bookcase, many times I won't because it involves bending. Mm. And then I think about it. Why am I being so lazy? And it's like, it's an automatic thing that I'm being that lazy, but there's a reason why I'm choosing to be that lazy. I'll like put it off. I'll go and do something else. I don't want to bend. And there's yeah. there's just so many things like that. It's like we, well, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. We no. Well, well, well. I'm just repeating myself. I'm just going to say we choose things purely based on. I can't be bothered to reach that. Just like energetic expenditure. Whereas you know, I'm going to go and eat a bit of pizza later. That's going to be like thousand times more energy than <laughs> would be involved in reaching that box or whatever. So when I was working on the house, I realised a lot of stuff about this. Right. Um, I should preface this with I'm diabetic, type 1, so I... The worst kind of diabetic. The... I know exactly how much sugar I need to perform tasks because that's... I have to eat that or my blood sugar goes wrong, right? we got lots of funny stories about John leaving his medicine behind and nearly uh, dying, by the uh, way. <laughs> there was that time I went to California and left all my insulin in a restaurant. That was good. Um... So, <laughs> but what I realized is a lot of tasks which are quite energetic, feel hard, like lifting something quite heavy, are actually easier to do and take less energy mm. than bending down. <laughs> and if I have to spend any significant amount of time bending down, crawling around on the ground doing something, it was mm. way more energetic than... Standing up, lifting heavy things, you know? And I could stand up, lift heavy things all day. But if I had to get around and crawl on the ground, it was like two hours of that. No, I'm done for the day, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm too hot, I'm too tired, and I've had to eat a whole heap of sugar to counteract this. And I think this is especially true as you get older. I don't know why, but um, I think crawling around for 
adult humans is really, really super energetic and difficult, um, which is interesting. Uh, I think that's why you don't want to bend down to the bottom shelf. It's actually energetically really expensive for some reason. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's my experience anyway. Compared to things which you normally think of as hard, you know, mm. go get wood at the wood shop, carry it home, move it around, you know, spin it around, store it, you know, lift big heavy bits of bags of concrete, this sort of stuff. Sure, it's hard work and it feels hard, but energetically, compared to just getting underneath a table to put some screws in, it's, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's got to do with the fact that it's probably got something to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of um, things we do when we're standing up and manipulating things with our, our arms and walking are things we are specifically evolved to do. And we use a relatively small set of muscles to do them, I think. Whereas if you've craw- you start crawling around the ground on the ground and suddenly using all the muscles in your body, um, and you're, we forget that we're always carrying our own weight, right? And standing up, that seventy kilos or seventy-five for me, just but going directly into my legs, which are made for this purpose. Mm. As soon as I start leaning down and crawling around, those that 70 kilos is going all over the place, and my muscles have to counteract that. So I'm guessing that's probably where it comes from. Mm. But as you say, it's, um, yeah, this subconscious knowing about this, and you don't really realize, why, won't I, why don't I want to lean down and get that book? Why will I just, yeah. why will I do anything but lean down and get that book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think st- stretching of ligaments and and putting like load on your knees and uh, wrists and things like that. We also tend not to like. Um, yeah, so you're more likely to get injured doing things like this, and I think we're quite um, injury averse, especially as we get older. You know. Um, yeah, high performance animals like us that have to run after our food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I understand. Yeah, but, um, you but the fact that your little so, envelope, right? Yeah. Yeah, this this study by by Summerside et al. The fact that they found so much variation as goes, uh, you know, gate switching and you know the styles, the, the, the kinds of gates uh, practice within our species. I, I, I without looking at the paper, I don't know what their sample is like for humans, but it's like how how um, you know what range of people they use. But it's probably going to mostly be people living in uh, you know comfortable. Uh, are they in the UK? Oh, damn it. Now I'm looking at the data. I don't want to do that. I don't want to start looking at the data. I don't know if they're American or in the, like, you know, in Europe, but they're going to be using like a small pool of basically sort of, you know, people that are the same general, you know, genetically close. The majority of them are going to be. Whereas if you look at the huge variation across our species and across all the continents, the, I'm really interested in this, that the fact that Homo sapiens is so crazily diverse in yeah. size and shape and, and also just like the walking thing, the variation there is in human gait styles. The fact that uh, – have you heard that it's possible to identify it, that your gait is unique to you and it's as individual this, – this is said and it's probably a bit of an exaggeration but it's said that – your gait is as individual is as, is as unique as like your fingerprint. So everyone's gait is recognisable. I certainly think there's many people I can identify them from a distance by the way they're walking. It's almost as if every single human has to learn, you know, has got a different way of learning how to walk. 
Yeah, and then well, people do yeah. say that that you can recognise people from their from their walk. Yeah, yeah. Um, the question, I guess, is: Does it come from uh, your the anatomical variation in people, or mm. is it more psychological, or you know, to do with just how you learnt to walk? Yeah, um, or all I think it's all those things put together. Yeah. It's the fact that we're and and again to tie this into the bigger picture. Okay, so we're variable in, like, mass, how much fat we've got. We're variable, and, and muscles as well, of course. We're variable in terms of, like, skeletal proportions. People are really variable as goes things like relative arm length and leg length. And some really weird stuff, like, um, I think it's 10 to 20% of people have a mobile um, tarso-metatarsal joint in the foot. There's like a mid-zone mm. foot of flexibility, which is something I read up on this and tracked down the relevant technical papers because, of course, it's relevant to the whole Bigfoot thing because people say that Bigfoot tracks have this flexible zone in the middle of the foot that makes Bigfoot tracks totally different from those of humans. It's, uh, this, I don't want to go off on a tangent about Bigfoot here, but it's like that zone of mid-foot, midfoot flexibility, I'm pretty convinced that it's not a zone of midfoot, midfoot flexibility. It's actually evidence for a... Um, uh, like a, a a pressure ridge raised by the front part of the foot, which happens, you know, humans can make that quite easily. But even if there is that zone of flexibility, there's, like I say, I think it's 10 to 20% of humans have that zone anyway. It's not a non-human hominid thing it is present in humans. And like, that's, you know, most of us, so most of us don't have that. Your toes and your ankle is flexible, but that middle sole part of your foot, there is a bit of there's a bit of um, possibility of lateral, um, like twisting. Yeah, you can you can people can you can twist the foot, but there there isn't there isn't like a mobile zone. So I'm looking at my hand here. There isn't this mobile zone like across that region, whereas there is in some people's feet, and it's like. That's a really weird thing to be variable in. People are variable, as goes where we have flexible joints in our feet. <laughs> yeah. And then, so then you're thinking, like, so all those, all those things I've just listed, okay, and limb length proportions, if you've ever measured your own intermembral index, the distance, the length of your arms relative to the length, the length of your legs, people are insanely um, variable in this. There are people, I have one in the house right now, who have arms longer than their height so will my son his arms exceed his height Mm -hmm. where that's not the case for me it's not the case for you know other people Mm. um there are some people where if you stand up and put your this this is the same the same measurement but a different way of measuring it if you stand up and put your arms flat against the side of your body your fingertips probably should be at about mid thigh Go on, do it now. Test it, honestly. No, I know I am about that. You're about that, so you're like... Well, you're, you uh, you strike right. me as like fairly normal, normally proportioned, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, my are deformities people. are on the inside. <laughs> but there are other people where the, the hand comes down to like sort of pocket height, you know, like a, sort of adjacent to the side of the... Uh, oh, the, the, yeah, people who don't want to spend money. <laughs> So then I'm thinking, if there's all this, if there's all I this, I can't. I would pay, but I can't reach the bottom of my pockets. <laughs> I've got a really itchy knee. I can't reach it. Um, can you scratch my knee for me? What? Why just sit down? Oh, I can't reach. 
Um, yeah. So, okay, now the it's not the elephant in the room, but let's call it the elephant in the room. The thing that's not the elephant in the room is that are we so variable because of our complex genetic integration of other hominins? Because, as you know, there's evidence that, you know, our species has hybridized with others. And so maybe that's why we're so variable. But then the counter to that is maybe all the animals are variable and humans being this species where we've got this vast amount of data is readily available to us because we are humans and we can easily go up go up and collect data from other humans you know, very easily there's loads of mammals let's just keep it to mammals here loads of them where this hasn't been done or the sample size is relatively small or even when you think it's a big sample yeah we got we measured 300 individuals of this species it's like yeah but you've got data from like thousands and thousands and thousands of humans so again is it like we're not actually unusual yeah and uh, could this be normal I mean, you look at the variation in some other primates, look how variable chimpanzees are. Okay, I have no concept of how variable they are in the stuff I've just been talking about, you know, limb length and stuff. But certainly their facial anatomy and their colours, they're super variable. Even within popular, even like not talking about different species or subspecies or whatever. But um, yeah, because there's a dispute as to how, go, how, how many species there are in pantropodites. Let's not go there. Um, yeah, are they also are they equally as variable and we just don't have that data? Yeah, I think this goes to the question because there's there's two things going on with human variation. I mean, clearly we are relatively variable. I, I don't think many people would deny that. But there's two biases. We study ourselves really closely, so we we would be aware of any variation that is there whereas for lots of animals we wouldn't. And also we're just really familiar naturally with ourselves and mm. smaller differences look more significant, whereas other animals might look at each But But can't you see? That's completely different. And we're like, <laughs> nee, nee. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we care about those. We might care about the differences in humans more, whereas, you know, maybe they're not actually all that significant. There's no... Um, we'd need some sort of uh, objective measure of difference to say how much variability we had. I suppose we could do that genetically to a certain extent, but it's very difficult to say how important a morphological thing or a gait variation is or something like this, right? I just I don't know how we'd even start to mm. um, come up with an objective measure of um, disparate sorts of variation in that respect. Um, we're also relatively new to the walking upright thing, aren't we? Well, are we? Well, as a vastly preferred mode of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambulatoriness. <laughs> <laughs> Not the word I'm looking for, Darren. What am I looking uh, for? Locomotion? Locomotion. That's the one. So, obviously, other primates can walk on their hind limbs. Yeah, but... Most of them sort of do it occasionally or a bit in certain circumstances, whereas we vastly prefer to walk on our hind limbs all the time. Pretty much. And that's yeah. not, that is, it's not like we've got 50 million years of that, right? Not 50 million years, absolutely. So a lot of no. our anatomy has had to change relatively drastically and quickly to this new gait. I wonder if it's yeah. just not as sorted out as it could be. Maybe well, this so. Is, 
Yeah, so uh, here, I could go off another tangent here, try not to, but there's there's two competing schools of thought on this. There's one, which is the proper, um, oh, is it called orthograde? Like upright body bipedalism mm. is within hominids, a relatively new thing that evolved within a subset of like it includes all the homo species and it includes one or two or three of the, of the australopithecines and australopithecines are clearly a grade they're totally a mess they're not a they they really should be split up stupid hominid workers okay so that so that's the, the mainstream view that it's a subset thing and it's like recent proper bipedalism is a young thing it's only like oh, five or six million years old there's a competing view however which is that it's the um much longer term uh more widespread um uh, preferred type of locomotion in hominins and possibly hominids and that it goes back way further like 10 to 15 million years mm -hmm. and in which case it possibly evolved by true bipedalism possibly evolved in like the late miocene uh, there's an animal called Morotopithecus, I think from Uganda, which has been said to be like a you know, proper biped. And then early African hominids like Ororin and Ardipithecus and so on, they were possibly true bipeds as well. But then several lineages evolving somewhere roundabout in between those animals I just mentioned reverted to quadrupedality or semi-bipedality, mm -hmm. in which case the bipedality, sorry, in which case the quadrupedality present in gorillas and chimps, and maybe some australopithecines, is secondary and evolved from bipedal ancestors. So that's a less popular view, but there is some support Secondarily for it. Secondarily quadrupedal hypothesis. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's out there as well. That doesn't negate your point, though, because... <sighs> It's like, even if that's true, even if bipedality is a longer-term thing within hominins, hominines, and hominids, were they as committed to obligate full-time bipedalism as we homo hominins are? Mm. Um I don't think that I don't think they're as specialised for it as we are. I mean, the weirdness of our feet and backs and proportions. That's the other thing. It is such an unusual gait, right? The upright spine is so weird. I mean, there's a few other animals that do it, but they're, they're not common, right? Penguins. Penguins. Is that it? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things that can stand by yeah stand by up yeah of course spine. Yeah. plus we have the lumbar lordosis we have this this uh, s-shaped curvature of the spine which might be something to do with well it's been proposed that it's uh, an, an evolution an adaptation for weight bearing in pregnant females and one of those things that it's but isn't that normal in mammals to have that curve I mean, uh, that, uh, yeah. uh, I don't know. I think, I think other primates, other primates don't have that kind of curvature. They don't have like the, uh, the sort of concave back. No, I don't think so. No. no, I'm looking at some mammals here. Yeah. They're not so arched as you get in most sort of. 
there is something a bit odd about mammal backs. They're not as um, most reptiles. Uh, yeah, just have a fairly simple arch, you know, pelvis to. Um, <sighs> gee, words pelvis, today, Darren. Shoulders, thorax. Uh, yeah, pelvis to shoulders. Yeah, yeah, pelvis to neck is just sort of a fairly simple arch, whereas mammals have more weird curves going on, I think. But yeah, you're right. It's not as pronounced as we have it. It's a bit of an illusion because you've got neural spines which um, increase over the back, so it makes it look like it dips down, but it doesn't. Yeah. And if lumbar lordosis is a specialization for weight-carrying females, why this is one of those cases where, well, uh, well duh, why is it present in males? It's one of those ineluctable developmental constraint things where generally members of a species have to be approximately similar in size and shape. Where else are we going to carry our beer? <laughs> but in the belly. <laughs> belly. So that's what it's... That, yeah. that could be... That could be... What's that, what's that uh, annual conference about the... The, 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 um, the bad ad hoc oh, no. hypothesis. Bar, yeah. bar fest. That. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a perfect <laughs> yeah. case study for that. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so um, there you go, like a, a, a little... Um, um, uh, I, I, I tend not to write much about hominid, hominin, hominin. Those names are not interchangeable. They all mean different things. Do you want me to explain it? Nope. Okay, those names, uh, well, well, they're just confused. more or less inclusive clades. Yeah, 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 I know, but yeah. people, but but because they've been used so uh, inconsistently historically, with hominid being synonymous with what's now hominin, people get confused if they don't keep up to date with it. But yeah, we can do that another time, or if you want us to talk about it, let us know. Uh, was, yeah, I don't talk about hominid evolution much. I don't write about it much at Tet Zoo, whereas it's a thing that you know I read a lot about. I, I don't say I know a lot about it, but you know, I, well, I suppose I do know a lot about it, but I don't write about it because I've always felt it's one of those things that's just done to death by other people, which uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it it seems to be its own sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, you got like fifty bloggers just writing about hominid evolution and that's yeah. all they do so it's like you want to learn about hominids you going to look at them but then i think that because they're just in that world mostly they do occasionally compare hominids to other primates you know, like baboons and other monkeys but generally they have very much like their own view of like the how the taxonomy works and they're not aware of some of the sort of bigger picture things discussions that are happening about you know how to analyze phylogeny and how to quantify or describe diversity and disparity within you know mammals or tetrapods in general so certainly the taxonomy that's in use for fossil hominins is is a bit of a joke really compared yeah. to what's happened elsewhere in primatology and mammals and tetrapods but like ah oh, jesus the whole idea about like you find so you find a new one Homo floresiensis, the classic example, and the first thing is, well, it's geologically young, so it must be species of Homo. And it's like, well, hold on, it's like different in this respect, different in this respect. Yeah, but yeah, but it's geologically young; it's got to fall in the Homo. So that's not how it works. <laughs> I was like, the whole reason, the whole reason for putting so many of these animals in Australopithecus or Homo, is based on 
literally their grade of evolution, not based on like their distinctive characters or where they fit within a phylogeny. That wouldn't wash with anything else. Yeah, it comes from a. I mean, I don't follow human evolution because actually I don't find it very interesting for some reason. Um, it's funny with that, isn't it? Just there's some topics that you just don't find interesting. There's like every there's everything's there that you should find interesting, but you just don't. This segs back to a conversation we were having in the restaurant the other day, which is that I think all of these things are interesting, but they're presented in a way that makes them uninteresting. So, like, you think of what you are exposed to, like, as goes, this is what you should be interested in if you're interested in hominid evolution. You're supposed yeah. to be interested in how tool use changed over time or how the different thatching traditions of <laughs> since the Middle Ages. Yawn. Where hey, 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 hey. They sounded pretty interesting. <laughs> thatching traditions, Sorry. you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, now I am interested. <laughs> I just think they're they're great at turning you off when, in actual fact, there's the stuff that's the stuff that's crazy and amazing, and like people they're just not interested in that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say though? Oh, I forgot. My Who knows? Who knows? Who cares? You were saying that you were saying that the people who like write about hominids only do hominids and do it intensively or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I had some sort of point. But you've forgotten it now. Sorry, I derailed you. Oh, yeah. Um, but what I was saying is I, I think I should write about them, and I don't, and maybe I should, because I think it's useful to have this, like, outsider perspective on it a bit, although that makes me sound like a crank. Well, no, they need, yeah, it needs to be put into context with the rest of, uh, a broader context of evolution is a good idea, right? Um uh, I was saying that I, I don't really, yeah, I don't find it that interesting. So I'm tremendously ignorant about it. But um, there, I think there does need to be more writing about where humans fit in broader, more broadly in tetrapods and vertebrates and that sort of thing. I guess there's sort of the million mile view of it, right? Of where do we fit in life or where do we fit in with mm. animals in general? But this intermediate stages seem to be missing a little bit. It's funny when you get a field like, well, I study dinosaurs, right? And mm. you find people that study dinosaurs and then don't really look outside of dinosaurs very much. They might look at sort of immediate relationships. Um, but these taxonomic groups are chosen almost arbitrarily, as we understand it now, right? That <laughs> dinosaurs, well, why not dinosaur morphs? Why not ornithodirons? Why not? You know, mm. bleh, any number of clays going backwards from that. Um, and they get sort of institutionalized in academia as a field of study, whereas it's not really a natural field of study necessarily. Um, human studies... It's tricky, isn't it? Because obviously anthropology and a lot of that stuff are tremendously big subjects. You need a lot of study to come to a conclusion about it. Human paleontology, on the other hand, isn't. There's not enough material there. I'm not saying you can't make a career out of it. There's not enough to study for a single person. But as a whole field, it's not equivalent to something like studying dinosaurs. There's not as much subject there. Mm, maybe. Well, how many f human fossils are there? Well, thousands and thousands and thousands. Thousands. Yeah. Compared to dinosaurs? Morphological diversity? Genetic diversity? Things well, we don't know? 
dinosaurs is a way bigger subject. Like way well, bigger. Thousands and thousands of times bigger. Without doubt. That's apples and oranges. But yeah. there's there's still plenty enough for you know, no, careers but what I'm and saying, careers. And, yeah, but what I'm saying is if you study that exclusively, you're actually yeah. in a very narrow field. So yeah, if you yeah. study dinosaurs exclusively, okay, it's probably a bit narrow. You should probably think about some other animals sometimes. But it's a fairly big field just on its own. Whereas if you just are interested <clears throat> in human paleontology, that's a yeah. pretty narrow little field. Maybe. I, I, but I still think there's a lot of stuff to go through and there's work out There's a lot of there. stuff I mean, with everything. But Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you, and yeah. as someone who mostly spends his time on non-human animals, obviously I agree with that. But yeah, yeah, there's there's just so much human stuff, hominin stuff out there, not just humans. The term human is increasingly restricted to Homo sapiens. For those of you who don't know, so it's technically wrong to refer to, like, say, Neanderthals and Homo erectus as uh, humans these but days. But who gets to decide that? Human is not we, a scientific term. Well, yeah, so that's a good question, and the answer is. We agree on something that makes kind of sense. Mm, but I think it's that's all, that's a bunch of scientists who are too close to it often decide something like that, which is, well, well I don't agree. Okay, but, so well, what are you going to do about not, it, Mr. Science Man? That's not what has happened in this particular case. No. In this, in this particular case, there are many, many competing views on the use of the term human, and it's generally being agreed and there are people who disagree with it and don't go this way, but it's generally being agreed that we should just use that term yep. for Homo sapiens. Mm. And, you know, we've got other, other terms. But I, I, for guess, I guess what I, don't, what I didn't like in that sentence was tech, common word, technically incorrect. Human, okay. technically incorrect, yeah. right? It's not a technical well, term. Can't be. Well, okay, well, so well, you could let, say that scientists don't use the term that way. But I think I don't like this every time it comes up. I don't like scientists using that's... normal English words and saying, eh, you're using it wrong. I think that's irrelevant because let's imagine it's not a scientific word. Let's imagine I'm using the word. Let's imagine I'm using a word that's not to do with hominins or fossils. The word phone. Yeah. And you want to, you want to use phone for your answering machine. So that's not technically correct. Like I say, that's not technically correct. It's not technically correct. If that's the way people were using it beforehand. Well, then it wouldn't be technically correct. It would be technically correct. (laughs) Oh, you and your words. You and your magic. (laughs) No, yeah, but you know know this is my general, like, when I start to get worried. When we just pick up a word that's already in use in English, has a normal English use, and say, we're going to restrict this and say you're wrong if you use it outside of this. Okay. But in so many of these cases, and in this one specifically, there isn't there isn't an established use where it has been used in the way you are disputing here. The word human hasn't been universally used for all the hominins or all the members of Homo. It's totally inconsistent, and you can't find a majority. Okay, so far as I know, I haven't. I don't have the. You know, haven't can't go and count things right now. My impression is that it's been used for all hominids. No, 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 not not all hominids. It's been used for Australopithecus and Homo. They've been called humans. Mm-hmm. It's been used for Homo only. It's been used for Homo sapiens only. And I don't think there's a majority opinion. So the general thinking is these days that it's most useful to us 
to restrict it to Homo sapiens. And we've got these other terms, you know, Neanderthals, archaics, and Australopithecines for for the for the others. So, and that, I, whether you like it or not, that is the way it's going. And my my other feeling on these sorts of issues is when there is a general community agreement that that's the way we're going, most of us are now using it. I think, well, I might not like that, but as a person who communicates with other people, I still think, okay, that's what that's how we're using it now. Then, so yes. So, but you're still Shut saying up. to someone that stop, stop with a word. Talking. It's a bit like, but no, no. I, but I think this <laughs> oh, is an interesting yeah. subject. It's a bit like bird, right? Yep. And so, when do we say, no, you're wrong. That's not a bird. I think we can say when it's actually not related to birds, when it's separated by things that aren't birds. Pterosaur. Yeah. So, I think that is sort of a learning experience. But if you're just saying, no, that's not a bird because. It's not. It's not the most. It's descended from something which is more, more, which is older than the most recent common ancestor. Blah 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 and blah blah blah. It's a bit like <laughs> yeah. you taught me absolutely goddamn nothing there, right? Just that you've decided to um, arbitrarily restrict a common term to some node, which people might not agree with, or doesn't really make much sense when they're just looking at something without mm. any actual information. There, it's just an arbitrary yeah. thing. So I don't. That- I, I don't like. It. Like it. Is that the case for bird, though? Uh, well, there was a lot of talk about that, but it's disappeared, right, I think. There used to be a lot of talk about how we would try and define birds as something, and it was really important that we got that node right. If bird um, is a member of the lineage that includes living birds and all things closer to them than to, say, Velociraptor or Truodon, mm. I don't see as that. I, don't, I personally don't see that it's that problematic, but you've got some groups that... If jump showed, around in that part of the phylogeny. Yeah, but if you showed someone a um, Archaeopteryx, yep, are they going to call it a bird? Most likely, yes. They are, but that's not in that group. Yes, it is. Oh, it is now, yes. You're right. Um, a- apart from in those phylogenies, in phylogenies there are some phylogenies where it, where it isn't, isn't on the bird branch, but mostly it is. But then, so you've got weird things like Scansoriopterygids and Anchiornithids, which sometimes are on the bird line because they're closer to modern birds than they are to Velociraptor yeah. or Jordan, and others, in others they're not. So in those cases, it's ambiguous. But I have, I do know of scientists who, when talking about archaic members of the bird lineage, like let's say, I don't know, Ginfengopteryx, Sapiornis, Yeholornis, they don't like those being called birds. And I'm like, I don't get that at all. It's like they're on the bird line. The general bird, as you've said, bird is not a technical term. It's like a vernacular term for a thing that looks something like a modern bird and is fairly similar to it in some aspects, more so than it is like Velociraptor or Trudon. But then what would happen if, hypothetically, if Velociraptor were to jump a couple of nodes crownward of Archaeopteryx. So then you've got to call it a bird. Yeah, this is, like, it's a learning experience, isn't it? It's like, well, actually, we found out this is a flightless bird. If you want to call this thing a bird, then this is also a bird. There you so, go. So, n- no, we don't stay awake worrying about this, listeners. But there's, and there's, a related, there's a related dispute, which we're not touching on here, which is whether the name for the bird lineage is, or is Aves or Aviolae. And I've I've gradually come around to the use of the term AVLA for the entire bird lineage, with AVs being restricted to a subset of it. But um, 
that's a debate for, a debate for another time. Yeah. So humans, humans and other hominids, believe it or don't, I am like for the last, I don't know, five years, the books I've been reading, I don't read fiction, the, non-re- the non-fiction books I'm reading for fun have all been on hominids. And so I, re- I read a lot of them. And the most, the best of them, in my opinion, is the complete world of human evolution by Chris Stringer and Peter Andrews, uh, published by Thames and Hudson. In this is the 2011 edition. It's really good. It's really strong. I was looking at uh, stone tools just yesterday in a museum, actually, mm-hmm. and um, I've got a few myself that I've found over the years. You know, flint tools and stuff, and some of them. Some of them are so big, huge. They're like, like you can just about hold them. Right? They're like that wide. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm holding my, my fingers and thumb as wide apart as I can. And they're like sort of, you know, like going on for 20 centimeters. It's like someone didn't make that to scrape crud off the inside of animal skin or to stab some to death. That's just some giant, like, display thing. Display like, thing? You don't think it's yeah. for bludgeoning things or smashing bones or something like that? No, no, no. These, these, no, no, no. these, these are, you know, the classic kind of like a tapers to a point, kind of like pear-shaped mm-hmm. scraper hand axe tool. I've actually got some within reach. He says, "Okay, <clears throat> so well, what do they say about them?" Yeah, that they that they were like the version of open carry in the United States. You know how you go to the United States, there's open carry. There's people yeah. walking around with submachine guns everywhere. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like... That's always been my experience. And they're not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, United States. You're such a cesspool of... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, America. We love you, really. Sorry, United States of America, because America doesn't mean United States of America. There's loads of, there's loads of America. It's not USA. So if you're from, like, Guatemala or Bolivia, do you describe yourself as an American? They yeah. don't, generally, do they? No. Good job, I wouldn't. No. <laughs> oh, God, gonna have to edit all that out. Um, so back to this big tool thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But enough about me. No, what what is this um what so what do they say they're for? Yeah, that they are display. So they don't they think mag- they use them for anything? No, they they're I'm trying to think of it's like having like a because they are uh I forget the archaeological term for portable artwork. There's a name for it. Mm. They're not the same as things you would put on a proverbial mantelpiece, you know, which you probably didn't have in the Acheulean age or whatever, or the Paleolithic. Uh, Acheulean's a culture. Paleolithic is a... Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like a cultural phase. So what, um, uh, yeah, what evidence is there that they didn't use them, I guess, is the question. Because they're too big, cause basically because they're too big to be used. That's the only... I think that's the only thing. They're for too big to be used. what? For, for the whatever function it was that those kind of tools had that they used for scraping or slicing. They couldn't be used. Whether anyone has actually determined that via, you know, because you could do like, you, you know, you can you can analyze microscopically like how edges have been used. You can do that. Yeah. Whether they've done that with those and found them to be non-practical. I know it's discussed in the literature because I have read about it. It's in um, Ian Tattersall's, one of Ian Tattersall's books. Because um, obviously I just wonder whether it's a two-handed tool and whether it's a two-handed axe or something. You know, it's for splitting wood or something like this. No, they're just, they're just not built for any of that stuff. Anyway, so this was a, an interesting little tangent. May I'll check up on this and come back to it. Giant 
tool. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be an FU. Giant FU giant tool. That so much of that st- stuff is just is just amazing. Just the, the the things, the artwork they did. So we spoke several episodes back about the alleged Neanderthal uh, cave art, mm. uh, which is part of a growing picture of you know people claiming, people arguing rather that Neanderthals were doing all kinds of sophisticated stuff, working stone and making jewellery and leaving things on them, um, cave walls, but. Yeah, still, still slightly skeptical that a lot of that is actually by Neanderthals mm. and not just uh, uh, populations of Homo sapiens that were doing things a few tens of thousands of years earlier than I otherwise thought. We could go on. I'd like to talk about the little Venus figurines, which you're not supposed to. I don't even I'm not suppose people in the technical literature. There's a tendency not to call them Venus figurines anymore, just to call them like the Venus of Willemsdorf. You call her the woman of Willemsdorf, stuff like that. But you still see the Venus terms being used uh, all over the place. Because, okay, look, Jesus yeah. Christ, you looked at the time. Um, so, so there's an interesting little diversion on hominins. We could say a lot more about that subject, and maybe we are one day. Yep. Okay. I'm really hungry, so I've got to go have lunch. Let's. Uh, well, it's lunchtime. We're going we're gonna to stop. Are you on the internet? <laughs> I've been known to be on the internet. I'm. Uh, I have a website, Darren. I don't know whether you've heard of these things. It's at johnconway.co, where you can see some things I've put on the internet. Spider-Man on Twitter. Pictures. Spider-Man pictures mostly. <laughs> you know, ah, <laughs> uh, superhero Web-sized. crossover pictures, that sort of stuff. I knew it. Yeah. Um, you know, you in your Marvel session, yeah, exactly. Uh, lots of enemies. Show you my enemies. <laughs> uh, Pokemon. I'm really into that too. So there's some fan Pokemon's art, Pokemon fan art, crossover, anime, superhero <laughs> stuff. These are all things I'm into. Um, yeah, I'm also on Twitter uh, at the John Conway. Yeah. Oh, I'm okay. going to plug my Patreon because I don't. We'll plug the. Uh, yeah, so uh, I produce artwork because I'm on Patreon and pay me pe- people pay me to do it. So if you like my artwork... Is that the only reason you do it? Cause that is the you. only reason I do it. For money, Darren, for money. <laughs> lots and lots of money. Um, yeah, so if you like it, yeah, consider supporting me on Patreon. Okay, you? Yeah, thanks. So uh, I, my name's Darren Nash, and I currently blog... Well, I blog at Catchpods Audio, which is currently hosted at Scientific American. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that I am extremely unhappy with Scientific American and the way things have gone, and it's time to leave. And I'm planning for this to be my last month ever. So I want to just up and leave, but uh, I have pledged to leave once, once I reach a target at my Patreon. Like John, I'm sort of desperately relying on funds that I procure from various sources. And uh, that sounds weird. Um, so <laughs> www.patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. So I have to get to $1,000, and I'm currently at 910 So I'm in the last run, and thank you to those who have helped me. And I am going to leave Scientific American and set up independently. And I mean to talk about that with you. Oh, damn it, I meant to do that today. Setting up a setting up a new website. Um, I uh, oh so so uh, check out TetzuCon, which you can get to via TetzuCon. 
um, biggest and best Tetsucon ever. It's going to be huge. I tweet at... <clears throat> They're moving to attack position. Shields up. Nida and his men duck as the falcon nears the bridge window. At the last minute, the falcon veers off and out of sight. All is quiet. Track them. They may come round for another pass. Captain Nida, the ship no longer appears on our scopes. It can't have disappeared. No ship that small has a cloaking device. Well, there's no choice of them, sir. Captain, Lord Vader demands an update on the pursuit. Nida, drawing a breath. Get a shot already. I shall assume full responsibility for losing them and apologise to Lord Vader. Meanwhile, continue to scan the area. Yes, Captain Nida. Exterior Dagobah. <laughs> Bog. <laughs> Day. <laughs> Luke's face is upside down and showing enormous strength. At Tezu! Tezu. <laughs> One day there is going to be a whole Star Wars movie in there. <laughs> yep. Easy to compile. Right. Until next time, listeners. Oh, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. We have to plug oh, it out. Yeah, we, we have the three Patreons <laughs> now. We have mine, we have yours, and we have the one for the podcasts. Solid gold house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, there's also a Patreon for the podcasts where you get to support our farty noises and we will be making some exclusive content, but not today because I really need to wee and have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Stop. Okay, bye. All right, should we stop there? Yep.